This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. Today's episode is a special presentation of an interview we did with Robert Coleman. In this episode, you'll learn how Dr. Coleman began making disciples early in his life. He then tells stories about what God's doing even today through those whom he's discipled. He highlights the importance of having a relationship for making disciples, and he shares specific examples of how he discipled his students, those he met in various contexts, and even how he discipled his kids. Be encouraged by Dr. Coleman's focus on the sovereignty of God in discipleship, and hear in his voice why he still gets so excited about the principles of the master plan of evangelism, and he's now well into his 80s. I'm your host, Chad Harrington. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about an excellent online course by Dr. Coleman that's offered through discipleship.org. As podcast listeners, you get a special offer for the Robert Coleman Master Plan online course. It's an 11-unit course that comes with a free ebook called Revisiting the Master Plan of Evangelism. You can learn discipleship online from Dr. Coleman. Go to courses.discipleship.org and get 20% off by using the code PODCAST. It's normally $40, but for just $32, you can get all this great content online. That's courses.discipleship.org, promo code podcast. Now let's get to the interview. A little background, though, for something that happens at the end of the interview. While I was studying at Asbury Theological Seminary, where Dr. Coleman resides, me and a group of guys got to spend a few months meeting with him once a week. And from that relationship, at the end of this podcast, he gives me some personal advice about how to use my life for the kingdom of God. I kept it in the interview and on this podcast because I think his advice will be an encouragement to you as well. Enjoy. Well, this is Robert Coleman, sometimes called Clem as a nickname. And we live now in a little place called Wilmore, Kentucky, home of Asbury College and Seminary. And I'm still on the faculty, though, at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. So that's who I am, and the Lord still gives His grace. That's sufficient for everything that comes along. Dr. Coleman, you know, you've been making disciples for a long time now. I'm curious, way back when you first started your journey, how did you get such a passion for discipleship? Well, it grew, I think, as I began to see more and more that this was the way Jesus lived and ministered along with everything else he did. He was making disciples. And I began to see that discipling is a way of life. It's not a program. It's not just a, a methodology or a technique. It's a, a lifestyle. It's the priesthood of all believers. When I saw this, it began to intensify my desire to create more meaningful relationships, because it's built intentionally upon the relationship we have with others, particularly those that are close to us. And it begins, of course, with our family. That's the most obvious place, but reaches out to neighbors and friends. And also relates particularly to the way that God has placed you where you are living, what's your form of occupation your calling is. In my case, I started out as a pastor and ended up as a teacher and professor. 
And so the most natural place for me to relate is on a campus where I'm involved in teaching students. But I'm not limited to that. I can go out and preach to crowds as an evangelist or serve as as a teacher at, in, in churches, uh, which is what I did as a pastor. And wherever you are, you'll have an opportunity, particularly with a few people, to get well acquainted and to build a relationship. Sometimes it lasts uh, just a very few months or years. Sometimes, like in the family, it lasts for a lifetime. But it's an intentional way of living, and it puts meaning in everything. Nothing is irrelevant. Nothing is beside the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Dr. Coleman, just in in understanding your story, your personal journey of disciple-making, you know, who discipled you? Well, I think I was being discipled without realizing it, which is the way I suspect most people are discipled. And it began at home in the family. And I had a good mom and dad. They were quite different in their personalities. Uh, Dad was more authoritarian, an army officer, but came out as a country boy, and he was a very straight shooter and a man of integrity. My mom was very sweet, very loving, and never said unkind words about anybody. And I think that her manner of life rubbed off on me, perhaps even more than my dad. So dad taught me discipline, taught me the meaning of obedience. But uh, it was good to balance that with the sweetness of mom, who I could always come back to, (laughs) whether I was innocent or guilty. I knew that she would not in any way quit loving me. And that's really, I think, how I began to be disciple without knowing it. And along the way, there were a few people, especially, that impacted my life uh, growing up. As a kid, going to Sunday school, I had a teacher that really got through to me. And I still remember her her life of, of, of obedience and her teaching. But it was really, I think, after I had graduated from college and began to put it all together that I understood what had been happening and the way my life was was influenced in people that had crossed my path through the years. And it wasn't intentional on the part of most people. It was just that was where we were in God's providence together. And most of the time, I was fortunate to have people around me who were able to give a consistent witness and and life of integrity. And that impressed me. I was... I was grateful that I didn't have the pressure to try to conform to the standards of the world. And Dad was was very adamant in trying to protect me from a lot of the debauchery of the culture, and and he had rather strict rules that I understood, but he kept me from a lot of the sexual indulgence of the crowds that were around me in school and out in culture. For one thing, he kept me working, kept me busy. I didn't have much time left over. And I think that that was providential. And so I was influenced more by by people that really loved the Lord 
or who were very honest and and forthright in their in their way of life. I was being discipled, though it was never called discipling. But the principle of being with people who who are who are observing you and are, in a sense, beginning to imitate you for good or evil. Everybody has that influence. Discipling is a part of the way we are made and are brought into the world when we are born. And in that sense, everyone is being discipled by their relationships and their environment. It's when you apply that principle of togetherness to the gospel that you see the power that comes when you are being influenced by people who know the Lord and who are intentionally leading you in that way of life. And when I saw this, after I began to seriously study the way Jesus lived and worked, it became for me an intentional way of life, and I had to figure out then how it related to where I was at the time. You're listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. This episode features Dr. Robert Coleman, the author of the classic book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is about evangelism, yes, but at its very heart, it's about discipleship. That's why we got together with Dr. Coleman to make an online course so you can learn about it through video questions and reading. It's now available to the general public for only $40, but for podcast listeners, you can get a discount. He goes through the nine major principles of disciple making. This course is great for individuals, and it's accessible for groups too, for anyone who wants to grow as a disciple maker. Learn from Robert Coleman online. Go to courses.discipleship.org to register for this course. We've got a special offer, like I mentioned, and it's for podcast listeners only. If you use the promo code podcast at checkout, you'll get 20% off. So go to courses.discipleship.org and use the code podcast at checkout. Dr. Coleman, when was the moment you knew that you needed to do this, that you needed to pour into guys by meeting with them regularly? I, I think it's when I saw it as the way Jesus was investing his life. Amazingly, I had been doing it for a number of years prior to that. I had been uh, in company with, with wonderful men and women uh, through through my life, and I felt the influence of their lives without realizing I was being impacted by their witness. But when I began to study the lifestyle of Jesus and saw how he intentionally uh, called some men to follow him, and how he invested most of his time with these men, even when he was doing other things, he was with his disciples. Most of the time, he was preaching to the crowds. And in his daily discourse, as he walked along the the highways and the byways, these disciples were tagging along, usually with him, listening to what he said to others. And I saw that for this to be the way it unfolds in the Scripture, to be intentional. It looks like just something natural, but it is natural when it's intentional. And that's when I began to see, if this is going to happen, I've got to personally do something 
intentionally or I won't have all these opportunities in in a clear cut way of discipling. So many could slip by my slip through my my uh, my life without really being impacted if I didn't really seize the the moment that was was with me. So what did you do in response to that and what has making disciples looked like in your personal life over the years? It was when I was finally after 6 years of pastoring and was called finally to be a a professor and not having studied it, uh, evangelism in, in seminary or in any graduate program, never having had a class or a seminar in it. Uh, that's how ignorant I was. But I, I realized that Jesus was the answer, and he was the teacher. I'd come to the conviction that the Bible was the inerrant word of God, and that Jesus never made a mistake. And as I began seriously now to try to look at the way he went about his ministry, I saw he focused upon making disciples. And then at the end, he asked them to replicate what he had been doing with them. We call that the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations. His way of reaching the nations was to invest in a particular way with few close people with them, but then commissioning them in turn to go and do the same with others. And this began to dawn upon me even after I had begun to be a professor. And I began serious. It didn't come to me quickly. I was pretty well trained in doing the normal work of the church, just preaching, going to Sunday school, and going out and preaching. What did, when you finally kind of came around and realized, man, this is how Jesus did it, and this is how we're called to do it, what did that look like in your life practically? Well, I said, now I'm a professor. How does it work with me? Well, I had opportunity with students. I was expected to teach classes. And I remember the morning, I'm going to do something about it. I just announced the first day of class, I'll be in my office in the morning at 6 o'clock. And if anyone here would like to come down and read the Bible with me and pray, you'll be my guest. I didn't expect a large number. In fact, I only mentioned it once. I didn't want to try to impress anyone. It was a necessity on their part. But I did make the announcement, and the next morning there were three or four guys showed up in my office, and that's how it began. And I've learned a lot since then, but I, I still have found that for a professor, one way to get close to a few students is to involve them in a disciplined study of the Bible or some book that is deep enough to challenge. In fact, just this morning, uh, I met with a group. It was yesterday morning. It was my wife who met this morning. I met with a group of eight guys, and uh, I've been doing that for over 50 years. Now, that's not the only way I disciple. I still have the primary responsibility with uh, with the, the people that are with me most of the time, which, of course, is the family. Now my kids are all grown, married, and have their own kids, and I, I'm visiting now with the grandkids as well. So it just spreads over. Wherever you are, you're going to have the opportunity. And you have to relate 
what the opportunity is to the mandate of the Great Commission. And my son, he is an engineer. He has six kids. He and his wife have homeschooled those kids because they felt that it would give them a little better opportunity to to, to train them. And um, they've all turned out well. They love the Lord. As an engineer, he's active in his church, Sunday school. But in his family especially, you can see the impact of his life of witnessing and of discipling. And the kids are picking up on that same lifestyle. And I think that where we are, we have to see what it has, how, how intentionally the Great Commission comes alive. Uh, one of my daughters is a nurse, nurse practitioner. She was over here visiting today, checking on, on mom. And uh, she is a tremendous discipler. And she does it intentionally. Some girls have, she's met through the either the church or through nursing there at the doctor's office. And uh, she's developed relationships with them. I'm not sure where they all were spiritually when they started, but I know that uh, they've grown, some of them, in a beautiful way and are now very active in the church and trying to to get out and do something more for the Lord. And she's done that just by being a nurse. That's that's great. Dr. Coleman, I know that you, you've been doing this for a while now so that there's almost generations of disciples coming after you. What's a specific example of someone that you've invested into and they're making disciples today? Oh, my. I'd love to talk about this all day because... Some of these people that God in his providences has helped me get close to are going far beyond me. They've gone more than the extra mile. They're really out there changing the culture and the, the world around them. I think of Ajit Fernando from Sri Lanka. He was with me here in my group, and sometimes we even went with me where I'd go out. I'd often take students with me when I travel. And he went on and got some graduate work and went back to Sri Lanka, where he became the leader of the Youth for Christ, which in that uh, little nation is the largest evangelical group in the country. And he's the recognized leader of that group. And through a opportunity that, that came up, I was helpful in getting him on the Lausanne Committee, and I knew the first time that he spoke, uh, he would soon be invited to go to international meetings, which happened. In fact, it happened so naturally that before long, he was taking more meetings than he needed to. He had a family back home, and I had to speak to him about that. He had to slow down some. Now the family's all grown. The kids are involved in ministries of their own through Youth for Christ. His name is Fernando, and he's become the greatest teacher of uh, the Bible that I think we have in the world. I put him upside uh, John Stott. In fact, he took John Stott's place at the Urbana Missionary Conference a few years ago. And he's been the platform speaker at Urbana and the Lausanne Committee. He's He goes out and speaks to these large international meetings. I sit over on the side in the amen corner, but he's the one that's up front. And it thrills me. 
That's great. What did you actually do for him to disciple him? Well, I just took him around with me. We prayed together for years. And you know, even though it's been over 40 years since he was a student, I get an email from him almost, I would say, every month, sometimes more often than that. We've kept in contact that way. I had to even tell him, I can't keep up with you. I guess I don't know where you get all the time to write emails. <laughs> he said, well, I understand that, Dr. Coleman. I don't expect you to answer all these emails, but I want you to know what I'm doing and, and how you can pray for me. And we we still keep in touch that way. He still lets me know his schedule. And he's out there doing it. And you could talk to anybody in Asia today that's well-informed as to what's happening in the church, and they'll know the name of Hygieth Fernando. He's one of the international leaders of the world church. I could talk to you about some of those right in this country. There's Ken Vaughn. You've probably met him with uh, Downline. And I indirectly affected him when he got to be in my class up at Gordon-Conwell, my DMAT class. So we were together in that relationship as a teacher twice a week, uh, uh, two, uh, two weeks a year for three years. But we've stayed in touch since then. And I still am with him. He used to once a, once a year when he's started to work down in Memphis now, really, really basically on discipleship. And it's spread now to Little Rock and and uh, Fayetteville, and I understand it's starting down in Atlanta. And now he's planted his own church and turned over what he started in Memphis as down line to those that he had trained. And it's still going on, just as strong as ever. He's one of just the young leaders that you'll find out today uh, in, the, in the country, planting churches and uh, leading them. And he's a good preacher and teacher, but he recognizes through it he is making disciples, and he's training leadership to carry on what he, what he starts. And that's the, that's really the secret of, of church growth. If you go in, plant a church, and while you're building the congregation, train up the leadership for the next generation. That's what Jesus was doing. So church planting inevitably follows evangelism. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be a preacher, but everybody can be part of a new church plan. What about someone stateside that you've invested into more directly? You know, you talked about Ken and Vaughn. This is more of a class setting, and, and Isaac Fernando, you know, is overseas. What about stateside? Who's someone that you've invested into that their story would, would be encouraging to those listeners stateside? Well, here's a, here's a unique one. Uh, I could think of many more, but a guy that was here in seminary one not long after I started to teach, he was just a just a student, maybe five, five or ten years younger than me. And uh, Al Coppage and I took him with me some, and he was in a group, and he he caught on to this idea of investing in in some some people. And uh, when he graduated, he went on and became a missionary down in Columbia for a while, then came back and decided he wanted to teach and went on to Cambridge and got his Ph.D. and came back and eventually was the professor of theology here at Asbury Seminary. And when I came back here six years ago, seven years ago to live, still on the faculty at Gordon-Conwell in Boston, but I was an adjunct here at Asbury just to teach occasionally, 
And Paget, I mean, uh, Al had retired now as a professor of theology, but he had been discipling all this time with a group, uh, including some from Lexington, as well as in other parts of the country. And he started a group here, Al Coppage. So I joined his group, which is older men. Uh, they're mostly younger than me, but there's one that's in a wheelchair. He's older. The rest are pretty well just around, with, around 10 or 15 years my age. But I'm a part of his group. We meet on Monday nights at about uh, 7 o'clock till 8.30. It's just a Bible study. Al leads it sometimes, but others of us also lead. It's He's the coordinator. He's the one that calls to see that everybody is coming or at least uh, checks up on who is coming. But he's still doing it. In fact, last week he was up in Canada meeting with a group that he started about 14 years ago in some kind of a meeting. And these men get together for uh, for a week. In fact, I think it's extended now to two weeks. They rent a big houseboat on one of the lakes up in Canada, and they go out and live on the houseboat for a week. For a week, And he goes up and teaches all week long, and they fish and have a good time on the houseboat. Just men. Been doing this for 14 years. Now, you know, this is a guy that I meet with in a little group now that he kind of coordinates. I'm just one of about uh, seven or eight guys. And I need that fellowship. It's an encouragement for me, which is in addition to the group of boys that I pour my life into that are just students. And here I'm old enough to be their grandfather. But <laughs> it doesn't matter so much. You know, age, when you, when you have a group that relates, it doesn't matter. Age, you can relate at any age. And so I, that's what gives me joy to see these people grow up and, and uh, disciple catch on, and I'm sure they're doing a better job at it than I am. If had opportunities, I had to start out almost without knowing anything about it, except reflecting. I began to see, though, as I studied the, the way of, of Jesus, how he discipled that the principles I had already been impacted by without realizing it. And even when I was pastoring, the people that really seemed to grow and and become leaders were people that I had relationships with. And even some of the old sinners that I built relationship with long before they came to Christ, those are the men ultimately that really got saved and then went on and in, in my first pastorate out in the country, they got together and built a church, and it's there today. Beautiful little country church out in the southern Indiana. Dr. Coleman, what's one of your favorite discipleship moments of your life? Well, as I look back upon it, you just want one example. I would say it's my son, Jimmy. Uh, he's a typical boy. He, he's a prankster. And he loves to have a good time. And he he got through some scrapes. I know my dear wife said <laughs> he knew that he would either be a convict or he would be a preacher because he really went at things in a great way. 
But we developed a close relationship. I know when he was in, in school, up until he was in high school, we would kneel down and pray and have prayer together every night before we go to bed. We kept in touch through the years, and he's the one that has now become an engineer and very active in the Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia. His kids are grown now and, and are out uh, in different activations tour in, in in medicine. One of them wants to be a missionary. And he has been one that I've seen up close mature. And the common sense that he has in raising kids and in relating to the needs of of the people around him. It just is, is so inspiring to me to see he's doing a far better job at discipling than, than I've done, but he's had more opportunities to, to learn, I guess, along the way that I had in the beginning. But he's just one that is a constant inspiration. I could talk about another another child, my daughter, who's the nurse. I could. I've already mentioned some of these people. What's the greatest challenge in disciple making that you've faced in your life? Well, I think the greatest challenge is those who don't seem to comprehend and don't seem to come along, and we we can learn from those too. Not everybody responded to Jesus, and even in even in his family, it was a while before they came around and really saw what he was doing. So how do you deal with that uh, in these relationships that you've got with people? Like, you got someone who just doesn't get it. You know, what do you do? Well, you just keep praying and trying to love. Love never fails. And sometimes when we don't see the answers to prayer, we just keep praying. And we're going to have enough disappointments and heartbreak uh, in the years that we we are on this earth to learn a lot about people. And probably it's the failures that are going to be our greatest teachers. Because when we see something that uh, seemed not to get through, didn't work, if we can identify what went wrong, then we can begin to try to correct it. And if we'll just learn from failures, there's no end to what we, we can learn. There's so, so much that we have not done right Sometimes we don't even realize it until later we look back and see uh, the mistake. But we're going to continually face challenges. That's the only way that our faith can really grow. And it's coming through suffering that Jesus himself learned obedience. It's these trials that God permits to come into our life. Not that he causes them, but he didn't stop them from happening. We brought them on through our own uh, ignorance and disobedience. He let it happen. And if we've got any sense, we ought to look through it and see what we can learn from it, how we can improve and how we can overcome. And when we don't know what else to do, we can still pray. Thank God. We're still in communion with Him. And uh, He will hear. And He'll help us over the hard places. But we're going to keep having one after another and that's why my wife and I are reading again together The Pilgrim's Progress. It's an old book, which in religious literature has been more widely read than any other book, save the Bible, in the English language. 
nearly 350 years old, but we're going back and reading it again because it shows how this man that is fleeing from the city of destruction, this world, and through many trials and through many frustrations and, and, and hardships, finally, he reaches the celestial city. And thankfully, God's not finished with any of us yet. So these challenges that you ask about are means of grace if we would accept them as an opportunity to learn from them and then to trust God to lead us through it and know that even the hard places are the times that our faith has to reach out and and embrace more grace. It's all grace, but we don't want to limit what God can do. And the amazing thing to me, working with students, is that we tend to limit the resources of the grace of God. And we almost, because of our culture, perhaps even the culture in the church, we, we don't really trust God to give us the grace to grow in the hard times. And we get defeated because of our own lack of trust in a loving Savior who is always there. He's the shepherd that's leading. And he knows the way. We may have gotten off the trail, but he's still faithful and he convicts us by his Spirit because he wants us to get back on the narrow way. An old Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, he's often getting off the narrow way. <laughs> he suffers for it. But God and his providence brings him back again and again. Dr. Coleman, if you were to if you were to say your main message for the church today with regard to making disciples, what would you say? I'd say keep your eye on the heavenly vision. That's what Paul said he would do. He would be obedient to the heavenly vision. You set your affection on things above, not on this world, but you look to Jesus who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's what I think we need to keep always in focus. It's the hope that is set before us. It's the glory that is always in the person of our Lord. And we, while we're working in this world, we're surrounded by corruption and uh, evil. We've got to keep looking up where Christ has overcome and where he continues to reign as sovereign over all, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what I want to get across. It's what God has called us to be. I like that first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer, number one, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we must keep in focus. It is the glory of God. And our joy is not in ourselves. It's really not in anything that we do. Any doing is simply an effort to find opportunity to praise God who has given us the privilege of doing something for Him. But it's what He's making us to be like him. 
created in his image. Even though we blew it in the garden, he never forsook us. His love would not let us go. And through the precious redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, he's brought us back. And he's making us what he intended us to be in the beginning when he created us to be like him in his image. Oh, that's our joy. That's our joy. Not anything we do or anything that we think we've accomplished. That may help us understand how good God has been to us. But our joy isn't the immensity and the unlimited resources of a sovereign God who is so infinitely perfect. Oh, there's no limit to what he wants us to become. And though we fall short, he's always leading us to be more like him, to know him, to love him, to have our joy in him, in him. You, Who is he? Well, he's the Lord God Almighty, but he has revealed himself in the Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate in our very likeness. You want to know who he is? Well, then just follow him. And the more you follow him, the more you'll see the wonder of his grace and the glory of the Father. I say hallelujah. Just talking with you on the phone here thrills me with the anticipation. And my dear wife, who the doctor says in the next six months or less, will have her faith turned to sight. I don't know just how it's going to affect me. I wonder now how, how I'll get along after that because we've been a team. We've worked together. But I'll tell you, knowing that that is before makes heaven a lot closer than it's ever been. And I'm pressing toward that mark, toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's what he wants us to be doing in the glory of his grace. I say, thank you, Jesus. When we recorded this, Robert Coleman's wife, Marietta, had not yet passed, but she is now with the Lord. They had been a team for their whole married life, and you can hear how his vision of God's kingdom still keeps him going, even now that she's passed. What's the background of you writing The Master Plan of Evangelism? Well, as I mentioned earlier, when I was called to be a professor, I hadn't made any effort to study evangelism. I don't know that I'd ever read a book on it. But here I worked hard. I found out if you just love people and you try to preach the, the gospel, they would they would respond. And so the churches grew, sinners got saved, started growing, and churches uh, developed. And some somebody down in Texas gave some money to Asbury to start a chair of evangelism. And they didn't know of anybody else right at that point that had run, earned a doctorate. And so they called me to be a professor. And not having studied it before, and now called to teach, I just began with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's how I saw gradually what Jesus was doing. And first it was just notes, and then finally I put them together into lectures. And that was the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. But when I saw it, you know, then I had to ask, have you been doing it? <laughs> I saw principles 
But all the ways to work it out have to be enculturated where you are. You have to find how the principles take on flesh. So we're always trying to find a better way to take those principles and apply them in our lives. And that's what the Great Commission is about. It's not a book of techniques or methods or programs. It's, it's an attempt to see principles and the way Jesus lived his life in making disciples. And he's the one that shows us the way. Dr. Coleman, why do you still get excited about the master plan of evangelism? I mean... Oh, I see, I've lived long enough to see it works. And looking back, I've seen the progress that has been made in these last uh, 88 years where there's been something that's happened that's really been significant. I can see the principles of the master plan. And I'm sure that others could say it better and say it differently. The principles, though, no matter how you try to word them, those principles are what you must grasp. Because principles are true in any culture at any time, and they become a way that you can set your pattern of life, give you some guidelines to follow. And that's so. That's the master plan. It's amazed me how it's been picked up in other places. And what is, I think, given me a great joy is to see how it's been translated. Now, well over a hundred languages. And I've been overseas enough to see how it's been picked up in, in church planting and how those churches have continued to grow and prosper. Uh, that, that was the master plan. And it still, every year, seems to be reprinted once or twice and in different editions. So it's not that's the only thing I've written. I've written the master plan in a half a dozen other ways. I, it slips into whatever I've written. If you've read any of my other books, you'll see the master plan. In fact, Marietta, my sweet wife, tells me that it doesn't matter what my text is when I'm preaching sooner or later before it's over. I'm preaching the master plan of evangelism <laughs> because it's a way of life. It's a way every person can live, no matter where God plants you or whatever you're particularly gifted in doing. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add as we close here? Well, that's it. I would say just to press on, Chad. Uh, try to try to put these these principles that to work in your own life and ministry. And I hope you'll do a good job in in, in inspiring some people uh, to get involved in the Great Commission. It's not a program. Uh, it's it's a way of life. And it's not just for clergymen or for teachers or for automobile mechanics or for, or for mothers, wives like my dear wife. It's, it's a way to live every single day with excitement, with a spring in your step and a sparkle in your eye because you're on your way to glory and you already know how it's all going to come out. Over there in Revelation 7, 9 and 10, where the revelator, John, had that vision of the throne and one sitting upon it like the brilliance of a, of a sapphire 
and a sword-eyed stone. And there around the throne was this crowd, waving palm branches, full of joy, clothed in white robes, speaking of their purity. And we're told they come from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation. The Great Commission is fulfilled in the plan of God. It's already accomplished. And anything now that doesn't contribute to that reality is an exercise in futility. So keep your eye on the heavenly vision. Keep moving in that direction. As long as you see the vision before you, as long as you're walking in the light that he gives, you're on the right way. And that light will give some understanding of the next steps to take. You don't have to walk in darkness. Darkness is all around you. You walk in the light as he is the light. Oh, that's the whole secret. It's so simple. Even a child can understand it. You just follow Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That's all. He is all and in all. And the best is always yet to be when finally we will see him as he is in his glory. And what we now see only through a glass darkly, then we will see him as he is face to face. Well, God bless you, Chad. That's what you're living for. So don't look back. Don't keep looking around. But just keep looking ahead and then looking up to the day that your faith will turn to sight. Yeah, I'm uh, my context right now is I'm I don't know if you know this, but I'm getting married in 30 days. Well, congratulations. You've got to get a good training. You've been given a lot of good information to get started. So from the very beginning. Turn your home into a haven, an entrance, a doorway to heaven. And just keep your your life and your dear wife together from the very beginning. Just center everything on Jesus. And when the hard times come, as they will, and when you stumble, when you can't understand why things are happening that seem to be not what you had planned, well, just accept it as a way for God to show you his grace is sufficient. Keep going. That's, that's good advice. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. Make sure to go online and check out the Master Plan course at courses.discipleship.org and use the code PODCAST. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.